welcome to the American Compass podcast. I'm Oren Cass, Executive Director at American Compass, and you are listening to Talkin' Policy Shop, the world's best niche podcast dedicated to conservative economic policy thinking. Joined, as always, by the world's best niche conservative economic policy thinker, Chris Griswold. How are you? Great. I apparently just got promoted to, to world class. That's that's really exciting. It's very niche. Small niche. <laughs> that's right. Big fish, small pond. That's right. There are one of us. That's one. <laughs> of all the Chris Griswolds right. working on conservative economic policy, <laughs> we have the best one right here. Chris, what are we talking about today? Uh, today, we're talking about China's permanent normal trade relations status and how in our opinion, Congress should revoke it and refuse to treat China as a free trade partner, uh, notwithstanding the WTO's requirement that we do so. I was going to say, gee, Chris, that doesn't sound very consistent with our WTO commitments. How will we remain good faith participants in, in the international economy after taking such a radical step? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I would just like to point out that part of the problem here is that China itself is already not behaving as a good faith partner in the WTO structure, which is really where we should probably start this conversation. Um, China routinely disregards the rules of international trade. They have been doing so for a long time. They restrict access to its market. Um, They distort other markets with their subsidies, including ours. They steal IP, including ours, and, and so on. Um, and that obviously has a number of uh, deleterious effects that we talk about a lot in American Compass, including uh, our, our trade imbalance, which is a whole separate conversation about the harm that our trade imbalance causes, the damage to our innovation um, and technological leadership that happens when we not only offshore our production uh, to China, but then get it stolen, our IP stolen, um, and so on. So. The, the, the broad point here is that expecting China to play by the rules, which is what we did when we allowed it to accede, ascend, ascend, accede, assess, ascent, ascend, accession, accede, when we permitted the accession of China to the when WTO. When we well invited them to the party. We sure did. Um, that was the expectation, that China would play by the rules. And uh, obviously, we all know by now that it didn't work at all. They don't play by the rules. They did not democratize. They did not liberalize their markets. It's still a state-controlled market. Um, and yet, we are expected to extend it all the privileges of permanent normal trade you know, status, which is just the U.S.'s term for most favored nation status, which means that we treat it on equal terms with all the other WTO members and afford it our kind of optimal tariff treatment, what is called a column one in the harmonized tariff schedule. Uh, where our our fellow WTO members belong. Um, And that's just simply not working. And it makes it harder for U.S. policymakers to defend and protect American interests. Well, and it not only makes it harder, it it essentially – it allows them to abdicate that responsibility. They, I think, can and do say, well, look, our our hands are tied by by the WTO. What, What do you want us to do? And so I think it, it's important to per, perhaps acknowledge at least that 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 this debate walks right into the sort of you know international relations debates that occupy an entire uh, academies and and areas of of philosophy because when it comes to international institutions you just have this very interesting question of what does international law ever mean how how do you enforce it can you enforce it. How do countries understand their interests relative to it? And the WTO is such a great example of this because in sort of casual discourse, we treat it as this 
thing that has authority, right? Well, you've you've signed this agreement, therefore you must do these things, and if you don't, surely something bad will happen. Uh, and and the the reality, particularly within the WTO framework, is that of course the WTO has no actual authority over anything. The WTO cannot assess you a fine. <laughs> it cannot override the the decision of a of a sovereign nation's own policymakers. And so remarkably, if let's say, and of course the US has done this, you were to challenge some practice of China's and note that it violates WTO commitments and go through the entire adjudication and then go through the entire appeal and finally years later obtain that piece of paper that says China mm-hmm. did in fact violate its commitment, what you get is the right to violate a commitment yourself in response. Yeah. Which of course you could have just done on And and in one. fairness, which we have also done at times, right? For example, uh, President Trump's 301 tariffs, which the WTO did not like, um, which we did. And so that puts us in this kind of nonsensical position where sometimes we do things that are violations and yet we get upset when other people, it's just, it is a nonsensical arrangement. Um, and I'm really glad you brought up this point about authority because to me, if we take a step back to kind of the philosophical level here, this is a question of economic sovereignty. And in my mind, what economic sovereignty means is two things. It means the the right of a nation to make its own determinations about what's in its best interest. And it also means the ability of a nation to actually do those things that it decides are in its best interest. And at, at American Compass, we talk a lot about the second, about how, for example, our current trade dynamics rob us of our ability to make economic determinations that in, in our own interest. This issue, I think, has a lot to do with the first, about reclaiming, the conceptually reclaiming that we have a right as a, a nation to make our own determinations about our economic interests and that it makes no sense at all to abandon that sovereignty or authority to a, a global institution that doesn't work um, and that kind of puts a, a, a patina of, a, of approval over a really bad situation, given what, what, what China does. Um, thankfully, I think we are in a moment where that, that kind of uh, uh, international relations orthodoxy you're talking about is cracking, starting under the Trump administration, I think continuing now in, in our current moment. Um, but yet, despite all that progress on how we talk about trade and, and, and sovereignty, um, China's trade status is still not a matter subject to democratic debate in Congress. Um, and if I can get wonky just for a second and kind of please do, by, this is our niche. Uh, this is what we do here on it. Our niche <laughs> in podcast. Fact, you're required to get wonky. <laughs> I, I, this is yes. I will get fired if I don't. Um, back in the seventies, um, Congress amended U.S. trade law with the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. Um, which was aimed at the Soviet bloc of non-market economies and was also aimed at their human rights abuses, specifically in that case, their systemic anti-Semitism. They were not permitting, for example, the Russian Jewish community to leave the country um, and emigrate if, if they wanted to. And so Congress said, if, if, a, if a nation meets that description, they're a non-market uh, a country that is doing this specific kind of human rights violations, we are not permitted to grant them normal trade relations status unless the president issues a waiver saying that they are in compliance, at which point Congress has the opportunity to uh, overturn that waiver if it wants. And obviously this was aimed at Russia and the Soviet bloc, but it also swept in China, which met the same description. And what that did uh, later on in subsequent decades is set up a situation where the president 
did start issuing waivers for China, which teed up an annual fight in Congress about overriding that waiver. Um, Congress lost those fights, um, but it had. There's, a, I think, in retrospect, we can see that there's a lot of value in making that an annual fight. For one thing, it created an atmosphere of uncertainty for American investors. There's nothing the business community hates more than uncertainty and the inability to see around the corner. I'm sure you found the same thing, but when I was on the Hill talking to business leaders, they would rather have a regulation they didn't like than regulatory uncertainty and vacillation. There's nothing business hates more than not being able to predict what's going to happen or what regulatory regime they're going to have to adapt to. And this was a debate every year. Um, and there's a lot of value in that, I think, signaling to American investors that this is an unstable and unsafe place to invest. And when we allowed China to accede, ascend to the WTO, we exempted it from the provisions of this amendment um, and took it off the table as something that Congress should debate. Um, that seems insane to me. That seems as like an abandonment of the principle of economic sovereignty. Of course, we should be able to debate China's trade status in Congress and let the public's democratically elected representatives talk about it, which hasn't happened for like two and a half decades. Yeah, I mean, it. it it's interesting that you sort of describe the the strange sort of procedural stance that these these decisions can can land in. I mean, and and frankly, it's telling that even back in the 1970s, you already had a situation where policymakers didn't just want to say, obviously, it is insane <laughs> for us to have free trade with the Soviet Union. You had to sort of construct this whole architecture and then throw in a human rights element and then have a waiver process. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we potentially face something similar here, which is, okay, but how are we going to do this? Are we simply, you know, one extreme you've, you've seen in some cases calls, well, for all the reasons we just discussed that the WTO is not effective, let's just abandon the WTO altogether, um, or let's find some way to address the, the China situation in particular. Um, you know, I, I think in, in my view anyway, the, the, the challenge with abandoning the WTO is that as a less binding um, but still useful legal framework, it provides a lot of benefits for those countries, you know, when it comes to those countries we want to be trading with. If, if we were just not in the WTO, we would have to go back and reinvent our trade relationship with every European country, with each of our South American allies. Uh, and so still having the WTO as that baseline or, or default that governs trading relationships where we do want to have them, uh, I think has a lot of value. And we can do that while still saying, except guess what? We're, we're just not going to listen when it comes to China. Um, but even then there's still, okay, what does that, what does that mean? So what is the sort of way to actually make this happen? Yeah. Well, there's, there are two approaches that are currently being debated in, in Congress. One is we call it the kind of hardcore approach, which is a bill by Senator Hawley that would simply just by fiat rescind China's permanent normal trade relations status, not permit it, not permit Congress to give it back um, and just move Congress, uh, move China uh, into column two of the harmonized tariffs. Or rather we should say – you, Congress would need to pass new legislation that's right. to yes, give it back. That, so yes, the status right. quo would just be yes. China it is not a, in. That's right. Go ahead and introduce a bill if you ever it, want to change it. Is it is a two-page bill that just does it. 
Um, and the other approach uh, that Senator uh, Cotton and, and Rick Scott and some others have taken is essentially to, yes, on the front end, rescind China's PNTR status and then return to the pre-2001 uh, status quo, which is this is something Congress needs to affirmatively decide every year. Um, and I think in that bill, and one of the reasons I like that bill is that it would end up having the same, I think, effect um, of making it really difficult for us to grant, uh, you know, re-up China's trade status because they would also flesh out the conditions of the Jackson-Vanek Amendment. If you uh, violate religious liberty, if you uh, use forced labor, if you steal other countries' IP, and they've got a long list of things that they add to that disqualifying list, um, and that would put whoever the president is in a terribly awkward position, right? If, if the president wants to come out and say at the behest of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that China is in compliance with all of those conditions, they can do that. But that becomes a very dicey political move um, and would tee up that fight ideally in a way that makes it easier for Congress to win versus what was happening in the you know, 90s when Congress would routinely lose that fight. Um, so th those are both ways to do it. Frankly, I think either one would be a vast improvement over the status quo. And they both, at the end of the day, I think have the quality of asserting that this is a decision for Congress to make and that it can and should make it. And that, in fact, free trade does not simply mean open <laughs> open trade with any country regardless of of what they're doing in in their own market and and yeah. I think that's an important point that you know we we all, we land on from from many directions at American Compass which this this idea that I think for a very long time people have seen free trade as as fairly synonymous with free markets that if you are committed to free markets obviously you support free trade and if you raise any questions about free trade, well, then we have to wonder whether you really believe or <laughs> believe in or understand free markets. And and I think what's so important to recognize is that, all, you know, certainly all of the economic theory of of how free trade is supposed to operate and and benefit the participants makes a certain set of assumptions about all of the markets involved. Um, you know, I think. Something about American foreign policy in <laughs> in the late '90s was likewise an assumption that everybody was or would soon become a liberal free market democracy. And the reality is that if you have countries out there that are not free market economies, if if you have a you know billion plus person authoritarian communist state controlled economy out there, and you say well, we we should have free trade with that, um, not only is that not free market. It, it is it, it directly undermines the free market. It says, okay, our market is now going to be intertwined with that one. It is going to be subject to all of the distortions from that one. American investors now have to think very seriously about what the CCP wants them to do. Mm -hmm. And every subsidy the CCP issues has an effect on mm -hmm. incentives and returns in America, and for that matter, wages paid to American workers. And so it is not the case that free markets and support for free markets necessitate support for free trade in this context. It is, it is in fact, exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It is free markets, free trade, pick one. And, and the right way to reinforce and support the kind of free market we want to have in America is, in fact, to insulate it from the kinds of distortions that that you mm -hmm. get from a place like China. Yeah, and I mean, there's a number of 
principles at play here, right? One is the principle of political sovereignty over our economic decisions that we talked about. And the other is this kind of affirmative case that free trade with China is bad for us. Um, it's bad in all the ways I think that 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 we talk about all the time um, in terms of uh, us developing on dependence on cheap imports and trading away all our financial assets to pay for them and so on. But there's even if trade with China got a bit more balanced and we were trading, you know, goods for goods in a healthier way, you'd still have this problem of the intertwining of incompatible systems. And this is a point that you've made that I think is quite striking and quite right. If we had known then what we know now about how ineffective this entanglement would be at democratizing and liberalizing China. Would we have permitted it? Probably not. Um, and as we start to think through the series of steps that Congress might take to try and undo that mistake, um, this seems like a pretty valuable uh, tool to put in the arsenal. It's obviously not a silver bullet, um, but it's an important step. Um, I mean, right now you've got a default of free trade that you can then, uh, you know, amend with specific solutions like 301 tariffs targeted at specific things. Even we, then subject, though, to right, WTO right, exactly, adjudication right, of whether or not you, right. it's permissible. What this would, what rescinding PNTR status would do would be, be to flip that script where the, the, the default is a higher tariff schedule across the board. Um, and if you wanted to do something about that, you would have to go and build a trade agreement with China. Um, which we shouldn't do, but even just making it something you had to do would be, I think, a valuable switch of the default. Right now we've got the wrong default. Um, and it would also, of course, be a pretty strong signal to American investors uh, that they should rethink their investments in China if China is now in the same column as Cuba and North Korea and not France and you know, Germany and all of our, our you know, Japan and our other free, you know, free trade friends. All right, now, Chris. Yes. You're a man of the world. Just the other day, I was complimenting the cosmopolitan cut of your blazer. <laughs> this is true. It was highly ambiguous whether that was an, an insult or, or a compliment, but I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. Which is what I strive for. It seems to me that you might fairly be criticized in this muscular America first policy proposal for discounting and indeed turning our back as Americans on the world order that we seek to promote and support. How would you defend yourself against such a such an, a charge? Uh, this 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 specific charge ticks me off quite a lot because it is in my in my view transparently stupid. <laughs> One, as you said previously, we don't have to abandon the value that the WTO offers um, in order to bring it to China. Um, we don't. Um, and to your point, I think, and in my view, and I, I think we agree on this, those uh, of our friends who would advocate for just scrapping or leaving the WTO, I, I, I'm not sure are right about that. You know, the, the American exporters get all kinds of benefits from not having to have us come to a free trade agreement with every country in the world. The WTO gives us this 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 default. That's highly useful, and we don't have to abandon it at all. And two. There are very obvious cases that demonstrate the willingness of the international order, including those Americans who care most about the health of the international order, to do exactly this thing because we just did it with Russia. We legislatively – What, Chris? We, <laughs> we refused to abide by our WTO commitments? We sure did, Oren. 
We sure did. Congress, I think quite rightly, in response to illegal aggressive acts by Russia, rescinded its trade status and put it in column two. It's now there. Um, and everyone, I think, was mostly on board with that. I think that the real, the real objection here is not one of principle because that we've, we've demonstrated the principle of the case. It's that our economic ties with China are much deeper and more significant than our ties with Russia. And it was less painful to do it in Russia's case than it might be to do it in, in China's case. Um, but that's exactly the point. If we are too afraid of the economic uh, transition pain of doing this, we are admitting that we have already surrendered our economic sovereignty, our ability to make our own choices. We're in too deep and we can't make our own decisions anymore is a really bad place to be. And I think to make the argument, to make the charge that you just made, you're kind of admitting that. Um, so no, I don't buy that. I don't buy that argument at all. I reject the charge. I can certainly defend those valuable parts of the international order that the U.S. really did help create uh, while acknowledging its flaws and shortcomings, uh, while wanting it to be better, and while refusing to pretend like China's a good faith participant in it. And, and I think I would, I would throw in one more argument in, in, in this spirit, which is that you know, the, the trading system properly constructed is, is fundamentally based on reciprocity. Um, and, you know, market fundamentalists got away from this understanding, which an Adam Smith would, <laughs> would, would clearly have asserted, and shifted to this view that says free trade is a good thing for a nation regardless of what other nations do. Um, yes. Paul Krugman has a, a very famous um, piece back when he was an, an academic economist on this point saying, in fact, from the trade economist's perspective, the WTO is unnecessary because you shouldn't even care how other countries are treating you. Your best policy is just no tariffs, welcome welcome the imports regardless, uh, which is, is sort of the, you know, uh, d dismaying and, and somewhat disqualifying endpoint of this attitude that says cheap stuff is all that is all that matters. And the reality is that what makes a trading system work and and potentially benefit everybody who participates is the insistence on reciprocity and the recognition of other countries that if they want to be treated well, they must treat others well. And so in fact, I don't think this is going to happen in the short run, but in the medium to long run, if we do aspire to an international order in which countries play by the rules in which they liberalize their economies, saying, hey, do whatever you want and here's open access to the American market isn't the way to achieve that. In no. fact, saying no, you know, in in the spirit of deterrence in a sense, um, there are going to be penalties. We, we are going to treat you differently if you behave the way China is behaving. Uh, so let us know when you get your act together mm -hmm. is in fact the only chance we have of, of moving toward the system, I think, that that those most committed to to an international I, I that's right. concept want to see, and so I yeah. think you have to be willing, in the in the spirit of Reagan, to believe in in trade, peace through strength, in a, in a sense. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and in the meantime, uh, whilst China is getting its act together, uh, protect ourselves from the genuine harms of our current trade dynamic, which is not healthy um, and does not redound to the benefit of working Americans or robust national industrial strength or the other things that we care about as essential to a, a prosperous and thriving nation. 
Well, Chris, it's time. Do you have a name for your bill? Uh, no. Do you? I do, but you just don't have one. You're just oh you're, no, you're it's passing? here. No, I've got I've got one right here. Okay, here we go. Um, I, was, I was worried there for a moment. <laughs> uh, I've got two. I've got the No More Perpetuating Nonsensical Trade Rules Act, which is the No More PNTR Act. Very nice. Straightforward to the point. Or you could just have the PNTR Act, which is Protecting the National Trade Regime Act. I'm happy with both of those. I think I like the first one, No More PNTR. It's a little bit, like it's a little finger wagging. No More PNTR for you. It's got I, that tone. I, I would go there. I think when, when you see it in the headline, you, you, you want to be conveying that. I think so. Uh, I think so. So that's well done. Uh, I, I I tried to to connect with all the kids out there <clears throat> in my bill. Uh, as you know, they like to say, you do you. That very much captures mm-hmm. the spirit of the age, my fellow young people. <laughs> I would propose we title this bill, and I would like to note this is, there are two recursive acronyms within it. I, I just would like to point out what listeners can't see, which is that Orrin has very carefully been concealing his written bill title with his pen this whole time, rightly noting that IP theft is a real thing, and he has every right to defend against it. That's I'm just exactly pointing right. that out. If there were an organization requiring that I let Chris see the bill title in <laughs> advance, I would in fact refuse to comply with that requirement. And my bill title is the WTO Entry Doesn't Override U.S. Sovereignty Act, or mm. We Do Us. I guess us is also U.S. It is, but in here, the U in us stands for U.S. Oh, yeah. Just okay, as yeah. the W in we stands I'm for WTO. Recursive. Yeah. So it. There's a lot going on there. You know, I I appreciate that you brought the word sovereignty in. I was trying to think of a of an act like sovereignty as an acronym, and that's just a nightmare. That can't be. I don't know. What I'm that glad is. you mentioned it. I actually started with the We Do We Act, mm-hmm. and then realized that that was neither grammatically correct nor allowed the incorporation of the word sovereignty. And so here we are. Yeah, here we are. Gr- good grammar once again delivers us to the right answer. Well done. Exactly the lesson we hope the kids learn from this discussion. Well, hopefully you've learned something about PNTR as well. That does it for this episode. We will be back soon with more Talk and Policy Shop on the American Compass podcast.